Well, last week we uh, kicked off a brand new series, and uh, if you were not here, you really need to go back and listen to it. We have all our messages online, and uh, Stephen preached last week, and he really did a great job of helping us explore the power of asking questions, questions we have about anything and everything, but especially as followers of Jesus, uh, questions we have about faith, uh, questions about God, about doubts. Um, about the Bible, certainly. Um, And one thing that Stephen pointed out that was so helpful is how uh, good kids are at asking questions. And I thought I would continue that theme a little bit this week. Um, I want to show you a clip. This is from a British comedy. It's called Outnumbered. It came from a few years ago. And it's a scene at a wedding reception where a bunch of kids um, have a chance to ask some questions of the priest. So take a look. Ask you another question about the Bible. Uh, well, yes, of course you can, Ben. King Herod set out in order to kill baby Jesus, right? Right, yes, he did, yeah. Well, why didn't baby Jesus zap him? Well, yes, I, I, I suppose in, th- in theory he could have zapped him. He... Because Herod was a tiny little speck of nothing to Jesus, because Jesus could have squashed him with a hippopotamus, or... But Jesus was meek and mild. Well, yes, that's true, Karen. And besides, he knew that when King Herod got to hell, that God would roast him until his eyeballs exploded. And why has God only given us 15,000 billion years left to live before the sun dies? Uh. When Jesus was a bit older and he was still being searched by the Romans, why couldn't he shapeshift? Shapeshift. Into a Roman, and then when all the other Romans were asleep, he could go along and kill them, so they would stop searching for him. Yes, well, I doubt he would do that. He, he wasn't uh, a power ranger or anything like that. Can I ask you another one? Is this the last question? No. Would Jesus forgive somebody if they flew up to heaven in a big rocket, mm. and as soon as he goes to heaven, he punches Jesus in the face and he beats Jesus up? Would Jesus say, ooh, I forgive you, or would he, or would he fight back and knock that man out of I heaven? I can't see a situation where somebody would get into heaven and, 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 and punch uh, Jesus. And also... The message in the Bible is that we should forgive. Um, and it was important that uh, Jesus died for us. He died to save us all. That's a bit selfish of humankind, isn't it? Well, couldn't you find another way, like writing to somebody to tell them to be a bit better, otherwise something bad's going to happen, or, or like... Uh, oh, or goodness. Like, uh, look, I, I really when must When Jesus be was being crucified, no, actually, why uh, didn't I ask God to send a meteorite and destroy all the troops of the Romans who well, were Well, it was the way that God chose. He wanted him. to sacrifice his only son. He wanted to show us how important it was. So he chose the most precious thing in the world to him, and the most precious thing in the world to him was Jesus. And then why did he kill him? Jesus says we should forgive everybody. Yes, that's right. Sorry, you are... This is Mary, my assistant bridesmaid. Okay, well, I'll be off. So what would Jesus do if someone stole his mobile? Would he forgive them? Yes, he'd forgive them. Yes, he would. You're absolutely right. Well done, Ben. Now, I really must be going. Wait, one last question. 
What would Jesus do if he was attacked by a polar bear? He would zap him. That can't him be true because polar bears are extinct. I, I didn't mean to upset you. I was you just should know that. You're not very No, because there's all not right, much. All right, all right. <clears throat> all right. So <clears throat> there's something really funny about that. Um, there's something a bit familiar uh, about that, right? Such as the life of a pastor at a wedding reception, which is why I don't do weddings anymore. Um, <laughs> But uh, there's something healthy about it, right? I mean, kids just aren't afraid to ask those kinds of questions, the tough questions that somehow, as adults, we stop asking. Um, Or at least we stop asking out loud, right? We still have them in our heads, in our hearts. We just don't voice them, maybe because we're scared to, maybe we're scared of the answers, maybe we're embarrassed by the questions that we want to ask. Uh, Maybe we've been told, especially in church, somehow it got communicated to us, this is not a place for questions, this is a place for answers, this is a place where you have certainty and you don't express any doubts. And we just don't believe that here at New Denver. We believe that questions are healthy and we believe uh, they're good. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to explore some of the toughest, some of the most difficult, some of the hardest questions that we tend to ask when it comes to what we believe And so I figured uh, this morning, why not just start with probably what's the toughest? Let's just jump right into the deep end. Um, This is the toughest question I think that we ask, and it's this. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much evil in the world? And I've asked this a lot in my life, intellectually at least, because I like to figure things out and think through them and process through them in my head and try to come up with an answer, especially on this one. You know, if God is so good, then why is there so much evil in the world, but I remember um, a a time of feeling this, not just intellectually in my mind, but feeling it emotionally. I had a chance to travel to India uh, several years ago um, to train some pastors who were there. I had helped write some curriculum, and we were helping them use some curriculum there. And if you've ever been to India, it it is just a place of senses, and it's overwhelming. Everything is sort of multiplied uh, by a lot. And I remember driving through Mumbai and you could just see slums and, and shanty towns, you know, as far as the eye can see. And, and the poverty there is just, it, it overwhelms you. It just, it overwhelms you. And when you come that close to it and you see it, I remember on the plane flying back and just emotionally thinking, why? Why is our world this? Why, why are so many people living without hope, without life? All they have is hunger, and, and they, many of them have been forced into situations they don't want to be in, and they have no life. And, and here I am, sitting on this nice plane, traveling back to my life of luxury. It doesn't make sense. Why is our world this way? And maybe you've asked this question as well, because it's not first and foremost an intellectual question, although we sometimes process it on that level. It's a deeply emotional question. You watch a documentary on the Holocaust, right? And you ask this question, why do things like that happen? In our headlines, another mass shooting takes place and we ask, why does this keep happening? And maybe it's also personal for you. Maybe you've had a really bad year and, and something has happened to you or maybe you've experienced something in your life that was terrible. 
Or maybe somebody close to you has been experiencing something terrible. Maybe they've been victims or experienced the consequences of war or violence or injustice or racism or inequity or whatever it is. And we keep coming back to this question, why, God, is there so much evil in the world? And the truth is, I think we know the answer to this, the, 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 at least the initial answer, right? The reason there's so much wrong with our world, the reason there's so much bad in our world, the reason there's so much evil in our world is because humans do a lot of wrong. We do a lot of bad. We are the cause of so much evil in our world. People do horrible things individually, and then people get together in groups, and they choose to do horrible things, and people create systems and societies and cultures and institutions that multiply that evil on levels untold. I mean, the Holocaust happened because some really evil people chose to do some really evil things. And they created a system that multiplied that evil. And a whole bunch of people sat back and complicitly watched it unfold and didn't do anything about it. And so let's just acknowledge that right up front, that 95%, maybe 99% of the evil and the suffering and the pain that we experience and that we see in the world all comes down to human actions and human choices and what humans are doing to other humans. And so the next time a mass shooting takes place and we keep saying, why does this keep happening? The most obvious and the most simple and the most true answer is, well, some people get really angry and they don't know how to deal with it. Or some people are really sick and they don't know how to deal with it. And they've got easy access to these weapons that we've created that kill other people really quickly and efficiently. And that's why these things keep happening. And that's important to acknowledge when it comes to God and to our faith. Because I'm not sure that this is actually the right question. Why is there so much evil in the world. We already know the answer to that for the most part. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to know. You don't have to be a church person to know. It's because people keep doing horrible things to other people. Humans have this seemingly unlimited capacity to hurt one another. But that leaves us with another question, which I think is maybe more difficult, especially as followers of Jesus and especially as people of faith, especially as people who have been raised to believe or have come to believe that we follow a God who's inherently good. The question that it leaves us with, which is maybe the tougher question, is this one. Why does God allow human evil? Why does he allow it? See, I get that humans are evil. I get that humans can do some horrible things, but why does God allow that? Why couldn't he stop it? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he limit it? Why doesn't he put a cap on the amount of evil? Why didn't he create a world where these kinds of things wouldn't happen? Why doesn't he look at us and say, look, I'll let you be mean to each other and you can say bad things about each other, but you can't kill each other, right? Why would God create a world where rape and war an atrocity, things like that, or even possibilities or even options for us to choose. God, couldn't you have created a different kind of world? Why does God allow so much human evil? Well, I wanna give you a few thoughts to this question today, and they're not answers, um, right? Because I don't really have any good answers. Um, they might not even be good thoughts. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I thought about ending the sermon right now, just sort of raising the question and saying, don't have any answers, let's close in prayer, right? Uh, but that would be frustrating, um, not only for you, but for me. I wouldn't like that, right? Um, and so I just want to share a few thoughts that can maybe help us process through this difficult, difficult question. Here's the first one, and it's honestly, um, I'm going to be honest, it's my least favorite thought, but I think it's true, and I don't think we can ignore it. So this is what it is. Number one, uh, maybe sometimes God allows evil because something better will happen as a result. Maybe he allows evil because something better will happen as a result. Doesn't this seem true in a lot of individual cases in our lives, especially on the smaller issues? If something bad happens to you or, or to someone you know or someone close to you, and in the midst of it, it's not fun, it's not good, there's nothing right or good about it, and you don't want anyone telling you in the midst of it, there's gonna be a silver lining, right? Everything's gonna work out and it's actually gonna be for the better. But sometimes, six months later, a year later, two years later, we can look back on that bad situation or that thing that happened, and with some hindsight, we can say, yes, it was bad, and that doesn't, this doesn't justify it. Yes, it was difficult, and yes, it was hard, and yes, I wish it had never happened, and yet somehow I'm a stronger person as a result, or somehow my faith is stronger, or, or a relationship happened that wouldn't have happened as a result, or, or, or I got a new job, and I wouldn't have gotten that job if my boss hadn't been such a jerk and fired me from the other job, and that was horrible, but actually ended up being good. And we can look back, and in hindsight, sometimes we can see that something that happened to us that was really bad in that time actually might have been a blessing, actually might have been turned into something better as a result. There's a famous story in the Bible about a guy named Joseph. Uh, not Jesus's father, Joseph, but a different Joseph. There's a Joseph that shows up in the very early part of the Bible in the book of Genesis. He's one of 12 sons of a guy named Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is one of those. And Joseph is his mom and dad's favorite. Like they love him more than the others and he knows it. And he's kind of arrogant about it. And he rubs it into his brother and sister's faces, right? He rubs it into their faces and they get really jealous and they get really mad so much so that one day they actually beat him up and try to kill him. So one lesson, middle school students. If your parents love you more than your brother and sister, don't rub it in their faces. Um, joke. Uh, he does that. They beat him up, they try to kill him, but it gets worse. They sell him into slavery. He ends up a slave in Egypt and then he ends up in prison in Egypt and he languishes there for years. It's horrible. He's, he's ripped away from his parents. He's ripped away from his family. He's a slave and he's in prison. It's this horrible, tragic story. But then this unbelievable uh, thing happens. He gets out of prison and he perseveres and he survives and he makes it. And then he gets this role in the government. And then slowly he works his way up until he becomes one of the top officials in the kingdom of Egypt. So much so that, that years later, he's able to confront his brothers, the one that did this horrible thing to them. And in the midst of that, when he confronts them, they know he's going to kill them. He's going to harm them. He wants to get revenge back, right? That's what he's going to do. But look at what he says. This is the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what he's referring to is a famine that had just recently swept through Egypt and the ancient Near East. And Joseph had been put in a position and he had the gift and the skills and the foresight to see this famine coming and he prepared the nation for that. And as a result, thousands, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives were saved through Joseph. And in that moment, he's able to look back and see that this horrible thing that was done to him, and it was horrible and it was evil, but he was able to see, you guys, you intended this for evil and it turned out that way, like it was bad. But God used it. God took this horrible situation and he transformed it. God brought about something good out of it. God was able to do something that you or I or anyone could have never imagined at the time. And you see, God sometimes, I think, allows these kinds of bad things to happen in our lives because he can use them or he can transform them and do something better as a result. Now, um, I think this is easier to see on an individual level, especially in smaller instances, right? You get your wallet stolen and it's a bummer and you have your credit cards and you have to reapply for them and you have to get them all back. And in the process of getting them all back, right, you realize I probably have too much credit, too many credit cards and you're actually in debt on all your credit cards and it sort of jolts you into paying off the debt and canceling some and, and getting them down. And, and a year later, you're able to look back and say, actually, maybe it was a blessing in disguise that I got my wallet stolen, right? So it's easier to see on a smaller an individual level. But what about the really big things? What do you do about that? How can God make any good come out, out of sexual abuse of children, right? You see atrocities that happen. How can God bring good out of that? You see things that happen on a scale that, that just doesn't seem imaginable. Like what good can come out of that, I get that God can bring some good out of some of the pain that we suffer in our lives, but it almost raises another question because then we back up and we say, I get that God can turn some evil into good and I get that he can redeem some evil, but, but why does he even allow it to happen in the first place? Why did God create a system where it was even an option or a possibility? Why did God create a world where humans could even do evil to begin with that he would then have to go back and fix or redeem? Why couldn't God just create a world where that wasn't even a possibility? And so I wanna offer a second thought. Here's the second thought, and it's really just a, a question. What does it mean for God to be all powerful. What does it mean for him to be all powerful? Sometimes we use this language, especially in church. If you grew up in church, we talk about God being all powerful. He can do anything, right? He's the maker of heaven and earth. He created everything. In the book of Job, there's this long book of Job and at the very end, I'll just paraphrase, God looks back at Job and he says to Job and he says to basically you and me, he says, look, I'm the one who created this whole where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations for the continents and the oceans? 
Where were you when I created every beautiful and imaginative beast you can think of? Where were you when I set the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky? Where were you when I opened the storehouses of snow and hail and rain and and watered the earth? Where were you when I called every constellation by name? See, I'm God and you're not. And I'm powerful and I'm in control and I can do all of these things. And you can't. And theologians sometimes use a word here, it's kind of a big fancy word, omnipotence. Omnipotent is just based on two Latin words and it just means all powerful. It means God can do all, he has all power. He can do anything. (laughs) Which we then back up and say, well, if that's who God is, why couldn't he create a world where evil wasn't a possibility? Well, why couldn't he create a world where where humans couldn't do such horrible things to one another. Why couldn't he create a world where we're all the same? We still have our jobs and we still have our families and we still have our relationships. We just can't be mean to each other. We can't do bad things to one another. We can only do good. This is, it would be a good and a peaceful and a loving place all the time. Why couldn't God create that world? What does it mean for God to be all powerful? That's the question. Let me um, ask you a few more questions. Um, Could God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Just think about that for a second. Because if he can, then he can't do something. He can't lift the rock, right? But if he can't, then he can't create something and he can't do it. It's like a riddle. How do you make that work? Here's another one. Um, Can God create a round square? And that doesn't make sense because if it was round, it wouldn't be a square. A square has four equal sides, right? So uh, can God create a married bachelor? Right? That doesn't make sense either. Those are two inherently contradictory qualities. You can't say that. it It doesn't make sense on any level to say God can create something, but it has two inherently contradictory qualities or attributes that don't make any sense. Now, the reason I sort of introduced that is it's really important because let's step back and think about the world that God did create. When he made our world, he made it beautiful. He made all sorts of natural phenomena in the world. Some of them were wild and untamed and and some of them were mysterious and sublime. And then at the end of that, he created humans. And we won't get into how he did that right now. Just don't worry about that for a second. But he created humans And he made them different than all the other parts of creation. He made us different from rocks, right? Because we're living, breathing things. And he even made us different from other animals. He gave us qualities that were like him. In fact, Genesis said we were made in his image and in his likeness. We're the only part of creation that reflects something like him. We're made like him. That means we're given freedom of choice, Freedom of volition, we're given a a moral reasoning that other animals don't have. We're giving an intellectual capacity that other animals don't have. But most importantly, he gave us the ability to have a relationship with him. And a relationship characterized by love, that we could love him back in the same way that he loved us. That's part of what it means to be made in his image and his likeness, to have relationships of love with him and even with other people. But doesn't love inherently require freedom of choice? Right? 
I mean, you can't force love. You can't even force a relationship. Love and a relationship must be freely entered into. It must be a choice. It would be like me walking up to a stranger and saying, you have to love me and you have to serve me and you have to say nice things to me and you have to show affection to me. And the stranger saying, that's weird. You're crazy. Get away from me. And then me kidnapping them and putting them in a dungeon and forcing them to do all those things. Would that be love? No, that's slavery, right? We call that slavery. Another example, there's a lot of talk about AI right now. If you create a computer or a robot that is programmed to love you and serve you and submit to you, is that actual love? No, the the computer, the robot is just doing what it's programmed to do. It's doing what it has to do. It's not choosing any of those things at all. That's not Love, the only way to have true love and the only way to have a true relationship is there has to be freedom. Both parties must freely enter into it. And that's important because when God created us with the capacity to enter into a relationship with him and to enter into relationships with others, relationships characterized by love, he gave us the freedom to do that. He had to because true love and true relationship requires freedom. And with that comes a huge risk, a huge cost, because when you give someone freedom, they don't have to choose you. They can choose to reject you. And he was able to make humans given this capacity to love him and and to choose that, but that means they also had the capacity and the choice to not love him back to not be in a relationship with him, to not even love other humans, to love other things instead, to love other objects, to even love themselves in such a way that they might choose to do harm to themselves or even choose to do harm to other people. Essentially, God faced the same dilemma that any would-be parent faces, right? We can become parents and we can raise children with all the love in the world, and we can love them unconditionally as possible, and we can try to teach them to make the right choices, and we can pray and hope that they're gonna grow up, and they're gonna love us back, and they're gonna love their brothers and sisters, and they're gonna love other people, and they're gonna make good choices and turn out to be really good people, but they might not. They might not, (laughs) right? We know there's a possibility that they'll grow up and they'll reject our love. They'll grow up and they'll make bad choices. And it would be like looking at a a would-be parent and saying, well, why don't you just have kids that have no possibility of making bad choices? Uh, That's called a computer, not a kid, right? That's not a person. And that's the choice that God faced. When he had to decide whether he was gonna make this world and make us, and make us in his image. And so it doesn't work to say, well, if God's all powerful, couldn't he give us freedom, but not allow us to make bad choices? Do you now see how that's inherently contradictory? That's kind of like saying, well, can't God make round squares? No, those two things don't go together. Can't God make married bachelors? No, they If he wanted to create us and give us the capacity to love him and have a relationship with him and have a relationship with other people, he had to also give us 
the freedom to choose that and the freedom to not choose it. And now I want to offer one final thought. And this is, um, yeah, one final thought. Perhaps, perhaps evil will never make sense. Perhaps evil will never make sense. And let me explain what this means and what I mean by this. Um, And I want to do it by reading you a couple of passages from somebody who articulates this, I think better than I do. Um, He's a theologian named Christopher Wright. And uh, this is what he writes. He says, it is a fundamental human drive to understand things. Our rationality is in itself a dimension of being made in the image of God. We talked about that a second ago. We were created to think. We just have to investigate, understand, explain. It is a quintessentially human trait that manifests itself from our earliest months of life. So then to understand things means to integrate them into their proper place in the universe, to provide a justified, legitimate, and truthful place within creation for everything we encounter. We instinctively seek to establish order, to make sense, to find reasons and purposes, to validate things and thus explain them. And isn't that true, right? Isn't this why kids are so curious? Isn't this why scientists keep trying to figure things out? Isn't this why explorers never give up? And isn't this why we keep asking tough questions like this? Because when we're pursuing answers to these questions, we're actually bearing the image of God. We're trying to make sense of things. We're trying to put things in their right order and put things in their right perspective and integrate things into an understanding that makes sense. And if sense and order and rationality and integrity are all good qualities, if they're wrapped up in who God is, if they're, if they're qualities and attributes of God, and if they're qualities and attributes of being made in the image of God, well, then maybe evil will never make any sense at all because it just doesn't fit. Maybe it just doesn't work because it's not the way God intended things to work. Maybe evil doesn't belong. Maybe it's like this alien intruder and it will never fit. We'll never be able to fully understand it. Um, Wright goes on to say this. He says, the final truth is that evil does not make sense. Evil has no proper place within creation. It has no validity. It has no truth, no integrity. It does not intrinsically belong to the creation as God originally made it. It cannot, it must not be integrated into the universe as a rational, legitimated, justified part of reality. Evil is not there to be understood. You see, maybe... even though I offered a few thoughts that maybe help us get our mind around it, maybe it's never something we're fully gonna understand. Maybe we can't make sense of it. Maybe we never should try to make sense of it. Maybe when we experience tragedy, we experience deep pain and hurt at the expense of others. Maybe maybe when we see things that, that... on TV or in the headlines and our hearts just keep crying out, why is it this way? This just doesn't make any sense. Maybe God is just nodding along with us and saying, you're right, it doesn't. Because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit into the universe that I planned and that I envisioned for you. 
It just doesn't make any sense, and it never will. And so maybe that's the ultimate answer to the question of human evil, which isn't really a good answer, right? That's not a great way to end a sermon. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Go home and be blessed. If we can't make sense of it, if we can't understand it, then what do we do? We grieve, we weep, we lament, we protest, we cry out in anger and in pain. And the Bible gives us a whole bunch of really good words to do that with. And in the midst of our grieving and our protesting, we choose to hope. We choose to believe that there's another way. We choose to work for justice. We choose to keep holding on to goodness. We, we celebrate beauty whenever we see it. And as followers of Jesus, we try to embody another way. We try to embody his new kingdom. We try to embody his new creation in our world. And we hope that there's a better ending to all of this story. Let me take a moment and just pray for us. And then we'll continue in worship together. God... There are times where um, all we can do is weep or lament or protest or cry out or wring our hands and say, we don't understand this. Why is this the way it is? I pray for anyone who's going through that right now. The easy and pat answers wouldn't be satisfying because they shouldn't be. And so give them the strength and the courage to keep trusting in you in the midst of that. God, help us to know that we have the freedom to believe, the freedom to choose love in the midst of all this, to choose to trust in you. And so even today, God, if there's any way that we need to come to you, that we need to bring our pain or our suffering or our hardships or our questions or our doubts our suspicions, help us to bring them to you today. Pray this in your name, amen.